So what happens next? What happens after Christmas Day? We prepared extensively for that day, decorating the house, writing cards, buying presents, training our parents on how to use Zoom, (laughs) and now it's over. So what's next? What happens after Christmas? Well, how about we take a look at what's next for Mary and Joseph after the first Christmas day? Perhaps that will give us some insight into how we shall proceed. How about we take a look at what's next for the infant Jesus, whose story is the hinge of our stories? How about we simply follow along in Luke's gospel right after the famous scripture reading. What happens next in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, is Jesus' circumcision. Kind of boring, but that's what happens next. Eight days after Jesus is born among the beasts, his parents circumcise him. That's what good Jews did back then. Mary and Joseph are good Jews, so they circumcise their son as a sign that this child belongs to God. It's a routine procedure, but a significant one for the Old Covenant people of God. Now, After the circumcision, they take their baby boy Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Again, it's routine. It doesn't make a great story. It pales in comparison to the thrill of the Christmas narrative. But that's what they do. They circumcise him. They present him before the Lord in Jerusalem. They follow the ordinary prayers and officially present him to the Lord. This is what the Bible told them to do in the book of Leviticus. So that's what they do. It's a first century Jewish custom. It's all very normal and routine. There's one more thing on their to-do list before they can head back home and nurse the little boy Jesus. As the Bible says, they are to offer a sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of their firstborn son. So that's what they do. There are two options for the sacrifice, one for wealthier families and one for poor families. Jesus' family is poor. So there at the temple of the Lord, Joseph and Mary offer the poor person's sacrifice on behalf of their son, two turtle doves gift-wrapped for God. That, my friends, is what happens after Christmas Day. Are you bored yet? (laughs) It's all rather routine, normal stuff. That's how it was the very first Christmas. That's how it is for most of us, too, after the festivities of the Christmas holiday. But here's the thing. God has a knack for showing up in the normal. God has a habit of taking up the routine and doing something remarkable with it. That's what happens next. That's the story I want to share with you this morning happens a few days, maybe a few weeks after the birth of Jesus. While Mary and Joseph are taking care of the routine religious business in the temple, here's what God does next. It's remarkable. It's not so much what happens, it's what is said. While in the temple, God orchestrates an encounter between the family of three and a devout man named Simeon. This is what we might call a divine appointment. God's circumstantial providence. God arranges circumstances so this holy man Simeon just so happens to bump into Joseph and Mary and the baby on her hip. What's remarkable in this encounter is what God reveals about the baby through the mouth of Simeon. 
what he reveals is stunning. It's extraordinary. The text even says what he reveals shocks Jesus' parents. Jesus' parents, who by this point in time have grown accustomed to the miraculous. They're amazed by what Simeon says about their boy. Listen to the story for yourself. I pray that as you listen, God would show up for you as we return to the routine. We're in Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. A man named Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. This was the same mother mother who was touched by an angel. Remember that show? (laughs) The same mother who heard the angel tell her the impossible news that she would have a baby and she would conceive while remaining a virgin. And then it came to pass, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, gave birth to a boy named Jesus, and and laid him in a manger. This was the mother who was amazed by what Simeon said about her boy. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. Why were they amazed? This was the same father who was stunned at the news that his fiancée had cheated on him and gotten pregnant, only later to find out from an angel that it wasn't so. Only an angel could have convinced him otherwise. The angel does. The angel tells Joseph that the boy in his fiancée's belly will save his people from their sins. In faith, Joseph trusts the angel's word takes Mary as his wife, and sees the miracle unfold before his own eyes. This was the father who was amazed by what Simeon said about this boy. What was so amazing about Simeon's words? What new information did they receive from Simeon in the temple that day? Two things. First, they were amazed by his remarks 
about how God prepared this salvation long ago, this salvation that Simeon looks into the face as he stares into the newborn's eyes. This wasn't completely new information, but it certainly made them think more deeply about what God had prepared long ago. Second, they were amazed by what he said about the Gentiles. Now, this was new information. The angels had told Jesus, had told them that Jesus would save his people from their sins. They assumed this meant the people of Israel. But Simeon expands the purpose of the child's birth to include the Gentiles. Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, Simeon says. And at this news, his parents' jaws drop to the floor. So let's consider each of these in turn. First, let's consider the amazing news that God prepared this salvation long ago. We prepare for what's important, don't we? Many of us started preparing for Christmas soon after Thanksgiving. Christmas Day is important, therefore we prepared for it by decorating the house, writing the cards, buying the presents, hopefully engaging in more serious spiritual practices as well. We prepare for what's important. God does too. God prepares for what's important. What's important to God is the salvation of the world. This is the salvation which, as Simeon sings, God prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. The stunning thing about this salvation, what amazes even Mary and Joseph, is that it rests on the shoulder of a baby boy named Jesus. And this plan was put in place long ago. Let's slow down and think about this word prepared for a moment. Simeon says that God prepared this salvation. What does it mean that God prepared it? Well, unlike you and me, it means that God is not a procrastinator. (laughs) It means God planned this thing called salvation well in advance. In fact, ever since Genesis 3... God began the process of preparing salvation. The moment Eve ate the fruit, God preheated the oven, and he's been cooking up salvation ever since. And in the fullness of time, when the internal temperature of the world had been reached, it was time to reveal the salvation in the presence of all the people. What was revealed was Jesus, God's ultimate plan all along. And this, I think, is what stuns Mary and Joseph. All along, it was the triune God planning on saving the world by entering it himself. Have you ever thought about that? All along, God had intended to come down himself to rescue his people. The coming of Jesus as a babe in a manger is no afterthought. His arrival is the fulfillment of an age-old plan of salvation. The plan was concocted long ago in the eternal mind of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Before he becomes the Son of Man, Jesus is already the Son of God, and he's in on it the whole time. Therefore, let us not think of Jesus as some kind of superhero who swoops down out of nowhere. Instead, let us think of Jesus 
as God's well-prepared salvation. Jesus is the result of a slow, methodical, intergenerational plan to rescue Israel and therein to rescue the whole world. This fresh take is the first thing that amazes Jesus' parents on the ordinary day that he's presented in the temple. This fresh take is what makes Simeon's soul sing. The ancient of days becomes but days old. The immeasurable weighs in at seven pounds. The rock of all ages becomes rockable. The all-powerful becomes all-vulnerable. The invisible becomes visible. The essence of love becomes love's embodiment. All of this happens when the word becomes flesh. And this is God's well-prepared salvation. Long ago, God had planned on coming to his own And Simeon has the privilege not only of seeing it with his own eyes, but of holding God in the flesh. With the eyes of faith, we can see it too, the mystery of salvation, God incarnate. Not only that, but we can experience it for himself because God has prepared it for us too. Simeon's song becomes our song. Simeon's song sings of how well-prepared this salvation is. And more specifically, he says it's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, this new information floors the parents. They had heard that Jesus would save God's chosen people from their sins, but the Gentiles, too, Now, I'd like us to truly understand what was so amazing about this to the parents. Why was the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's salvation plan so amazing to them? Well, let me ask you a series of questions to help us kind of feel, feel this, okay? Do you know what it feels like to be left out? Do you know what it's like to be kept in the dark? Do you know what it's like to be in a room where everyone knows the secret except you? Do you know what it's like to hear the laughter of everyone and you're the butt of the joke? Do you know what it feels like to be on the fringe of a group or on the fringe of a family? Yes, you're invited to the family Christmas, but no one pays much attention to you. In a nutshell, that was the experience of the Gentiles in relation to the Jews. In fact, in the temple itself, there was something called the Gentile court. (laughs) That's where they belong. They weren't allowed to go any further. They weren't allowed to go closer for a better view of the glory of the Lord. That was the experience of the Gentiles in relation to the Jews. They were left out. They were kept in the dark. But then Jesus came And Simeon reveals why he came. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, came to turn on the lights for everyone. He became, in the words of Simeon, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now let me ask, what is a Gentile? I feel like that's one of those questions that 
churchgoers want to ask but are too embarrassed to ask because they feel like they should know the answer. (laughs) What is a Gentile? Sounds like the name of some kind of strange lizard or something. Gentile, reptile, I don't know. What is a Gentile? (laughs) Well, put simply, Gentiles were non-Jews. The name Gentile was a Jewish way of referring to people who weren't a part of their group. Gentiles were people outside of God's covenant promises. God had a, they had, God had a unique history with Israel, but God did not have a unique history with the Gentiles. God had chosen Israel, but apparently God had not chosen the Gentiles. Everyone that wasn't so fortunate to be chosen by God was considered a Gentile. This, by the way, included most of the world's population. It also includes us. What startles Mary and Joseph, these good Jewish parents, but what Simeon, devout and righteous Jew himself, what he sees as clear as day is that God's well-prepared salvation includes the Gentiles. The newborn in his arms will be a light of revelation to outsiders. This is what the Holy Spirit-filled Simeon knows. This is the reason the first-time parents are so amazed at what was said about their boy. The Jewish Messiah was expected to come and restore Israel, but most had overlooked all the prophecies about how this Messiah would also be the Savior of the world, including the Gentiles. This shouldn't have been as much as a surprise as it was. Had first century Jews listened to their own prophets, they would have anticipated the news of a Messiah for everyone. But the prophets made them uncomfortable, just as they make us uncomfortable still today. So they were shocked at the thought of it. Even faithful Jews like Mary and Joseph were shocked that their Jesus was for everyone. But from the beginning, God had chosen Israel, not for privilege, but for purpose. You've heard us say this before, but it bears repeating. From the moment God chose Abraham, God made clear that Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. God did not bless him so he'd feel special at being included, while so many others were excluded. No, God blessed Abraham so that he and his family and the nation of Israel that followed, God blessed them so that they would in turn extend that blessing to everyone, Gentiles included. God had told his people to turn the lights on for all to see the glory of the Lord. But they refused. At least many generations refused. Now, they didn't refuse out loud. They didn't say, no, we're not going to do that, God. Instead, they refused in the same way that church people often refuse. Their refusal was more passive-aggressive. They, they just didn't invite the Gentiles to the parties. They just didn't give them a place at the table because they were considered unclean. They, they just didn't extend God's blessing to non-Jews because they, they created a way of life that made interactions with them unlikely. 
And when they, when they did have a chance to interact with Gentiles, well, they would just kind of give them the cold shoulder. There's a lesson here for the American church, too, you know. So what does God do? God comes himself and turns on the lights for the Gentiles. In Jesus, God turns on the lights for the outsiders. In Jesus, God welcomes the excluded. In Jesus, God tears the veil of the temple in two so that the Gentile court is demolished and all can come into God's presence. In Jesus, God enlightens those who had wrongly been kept in the dark. In Jesus, God steps outside of the religious institution and takes to the streets, demonstrating love, offering help, bringing blessing to the Gentiles. That's a good thing for us because, well, we are not ethnic Jews, are we? (laughs) We are Gentiles. It's a good thing for us because we all were once excluded, but now we have been included by God. As Peter says, we once were no people, but now we are God's people. We once had no family, but now we are called children of God. Now we are called to be like Jesus and do the same. And here's our application for today. We who follow this Jesus, who is a light of revelation to the Gentiles, We're called by this same Jesus to be the light of the world. The church, we're called to be the light of the world. So as we prepare for a new year, I wonder, how are we doing at this? You see, the same temptation that overwhelmed the old covenant people of God, it pulls at us too. It's the temptation to keep the light hidden under a bushel basket, as Jesus says. So we must ask ourselves honestly, how many of our ministries are aimed at blessing those outside of the church? Or are most of them designed to benefit mostly our members? Or how about this question? When we think about church and the Christian faith, do we become preoccupied on what's in it for us? Or are we focused on what we're putting in it for others? Or how about this one? Have we personally developed a way of life, you know, the places we go, the people we interact with? Have we personally developed a way of life that makes interactions with non-church people unlikely? Or do we, like Jesus, take to the streets with the good news of God's love for all people, including the excluded, welcoming the outsider, including the one who feels that he has nowhere to belong. For these folks, Jesus came. Jesus came as a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and all the nations awakened to the light of God's presence. Now we, the church, are called to light the way for others, that the unchurched and the de-churched and the I hate the church types of people would experience afresh the love of God for them. But it's going to hurt. That's basically how the text ends for today. Simeon tells Mary that it's going to hurt. Did you, did you notice that? He says, and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. 
right before Simeon says that, he says, this boy, this boy that he's holding in his arms, the incarnate Son of God, this boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel. He is to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. So this is going to (laughs) hurt. Turns out the oohs and ahs around baby Jesus will not last forever. Admiration for Jesus would eventually turn into opposition for Jesus. Now here's the big idea from our passage. The opposition to Jesus is because of the inclusion. The opposition is because of the inclusion. Who Jesus decides to include. Jesus is God's well-prepared plan to rescue the world. Jesus comes as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He brings glory to Israel, too, because he is their long-awaited Messiah. Blessing still flows through Israel because it flows through Jesus, the Messiah. But not all of Israel is going to be on board. There is going to be opposition to God's will revealed in Jesus. This opposition has everything to do with the inclusion of outsiders. That's what ticks off the religious leaders of Israel so much. The boy Jesus, as Simeon says, will be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel. In other words, if you can't open the circle, you're out of the circle. That will be the new rule of belonging. In this way, division will come to Israel. Some will side with Jesus and his plan to encompass Gentiles into God's redeemed family circle. Others will be stubborn, unable to imagine a life with God, oriented around something other than age-old traditions and customs. The sword will pierce Mary's innermost being too. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she'll hurt too. This may refer to the pain it will cause her to watch her son be so opposed. This may refer to the ways her sons will challenge her own presumptions about who's in and who's out, who's family and who's not. Remember what Jesus told the crowd about family? (laughs) Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he says, that's my brother and sister and mother. We don't know what Simeon means by this sword piercing Mary's innermost being, but this much is sure. It's going to hurt. The ministry of Jesus is going to hurt, and it's going to hurt for us too who are called to further his ministry in the world. It's not going to come easy, God's well-prepared salvation. Like anything that truly matters, it will come at a great cost, But in the end, it will be enough to buy back our freedom. It will be enough to include us, even us, into the worldwide family of God.